Hi there, this is Harris Sambalukos, and I'm the Director of Photography on Death on the Nile and Belfast, and this is the Go Creative Show. Hello and welcome to the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today we speak with Harris Zambarlukas, the Director of Photography of Death on the Nile and Belfast, and of course, many others as well. Uh, Harris, welcome to the show. Hi, Ben. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. It's been like a ha- like the past 48 hours has basically been all you. I watched Belfast. I watched Death on the Nile. I've been reading up on you. Just your work is so great, and I am very excited to talk to you. But before we get there, I want to very quickly mention our sponsor for today, Filmmakers Academy. Master your craft at Filmmakers Academy. Of course, head over to gocreativeshow.com forward slash Filmmakers Academy, and you get 10% off with promo code GOCREATIVE10. Also, follow us on your favorite podcast app, as well as Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. So, Harris, Death on the Nile is finally out. <laughs> yes. Finally. I mean, it, you must be so happy for this thing to actually be out there in the world. It's been, what, two years or so since it was supposed to be released? Well, I think it was about two years since we wrapped, but um, uh, a little less for when it was meant to be released. Um, We wrapped just before COVID. We were just unlucky that way. And uh, I'm really grateful that cinemas are back. They've been stopping and starting. but uh, And I'm very grateful that Disney waited um, for a cinema release and a theatrical release and didn't just stream it. Um, That makes us feel kind of happy and proud that they think highly of us enough to to be patient um, and present it in the way it should be. Yeah, for a while there, it seemed like the way it was going to be forever is this kind of simultaneous release on streaming and also in theaters. But slowly but surely, Mm. you're seeing the streaming kind of being delayed. Uh, You know, how do people feel about that in your industry? I mean, obviously, you can only speak for yourself, but how do you feel about that? And then also kind of what's just the general feeling out there in, in the film industry? Well, I think uh, the first is relief and the other is uh, gratitude. Today was a really wonderful day for my family. There We have half term and my, my, my wife took our three children, two of which are twins, four years old, and they've never been to the cinema. Um, so they were two when the pandemic started. They went to yeah. see Sing Two and my wife said they were just ecstatic and that it in no way compares to watching a film at home. So um, I think it's from the very youngest to the very oldest. And today, at the same time, my father and mother who live in Cyprus took our family in Cyprus to see Death on the Nile in the cinema. And that's the first time they've returned to uh, the cinema for a long time. So uh, you've called me on the, on the day where we're having a, a family cinema celebration. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it really does make a difference. I mean, yeah, who doesn't like the convenience of just being able to put something on your TV and watch it? I mean, it just, there is a convenience to it. But when you want to really experience something, at least for me, maybe my home theater setup's not that great, but at least for me, the experience of going to the cinema is just different. It just is. And maybe this little time apart is going to kind of, you know, make the heart grow fonder, I guess, in a way, when it comes to cinema. I really hope so. Uh, cinema is, a, is meant to be a communal experience. I think it harkens back to ancient times when we all sat around a fireplace and, and told stories. And our modern equivalent 
um, is really uh, uh, cinema. I don't think there's a, a greater modern communal storytelling. Now, I, I have to congratulate you for the great success of uh, for Belfast. I mean, just the Academy Award nominations. I mean, what a what a feeling that must be to know that you're a part of a project that is so successful and you know that people just love it and is up for major awards. I mean, that that's got to feel great. Absolutely, it does. Especially since it was a passion project. That was um, uh, for Ken and I and the rest of the team. It was a a lockdown project. Um, that's what we did during the pandemic. Um, we basically finished the post on Death on the Nile and shot and finished uh, uh, Belfast. So we didn't have high expectations of Belfast. We made it really um, in the purest sense as a filmmaking uh, uh, exercise. Um, so to see the audience reaction, it's just given us the conviction to kind of follow our heart maybe more um, passionately and uh, with, with more confidence, maybe. And we're going to talk about Belfast a little bit more uh, later in the show, but I want to begin our discussion with that death on the Nile, um, which is out now. I just saw it yesterday. I really enjoyed it. And there's quite a bit of stuff in there to discuss. Um, I'd like to start with your black and white approach to the opening scene. Um, it really had this incredible richness to it. It had a lot of very visible grain in it. It felt very pure. And I just, I love the look of that. And I'm saying, you're kind of seeing more black and white now um, in the past couple of years. It's popping up in TV shows. It's popping up in films. It's becoming kind of popular again. What are your thoughts on that? Well, for, for me, I don't know. Black and white was always my favorite storytelling tool to begin with. So Ken and I have always been great lovers of black and white. We watch more and more black and white films for references than anything else. We, Ken often jokes with me, can you please bring up a reference that is in color for one of our films? I think in particular with Death on the Nile, um, since it's set in the 30s, and in particular the uh, World War I sequences even earlier, um, when we were thinking of things and watching, looking at photographs and watching films of the time, they were all in black and white. Um, and we really took a kind of an approach to this that it had to be a more French black and white for this particular rather what than... What did that mean to you? Well, and by the way, the Ken we're talking about is Kenneth. Kenneth Branagh, the director yes. and also the star of, uh, one of the stars on Death on the Nile. Um, who I call Ken <laughs> for 15 <laughs> That's all years. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but well, you can, <laughs> you, you know. <laughs> but what does that mean to you? What is a French black and white? Oh, I love French cinema. It has, uh, uh, it has a kind of very, I, I think, um, uh, fluid, style often um it doesn't conform to the norms um I, I was influenced very much by kind of the new wave and their framing and um people like henry alakan um and they always used negative space so we started a lot of the framing in the opening sequence has um just space to see the clouds move um and the battlefield and um, 
isn't just a, 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 a strict a close-up or a mid-shot or a wide. Um, so you are familiar with your environment as much as you are familiar with your character. And that, that was an important thing to say. We also shot in 65 millimeter film. We mm. used uh, four Panavision 65 mil cameras. There are only two sound sync cameras and there are, I believe, three MOS cameras that are high speed. Um, we used uh, System 65 lenses and Sphero lenses. The System 65s are from the early 80s. Um, but the spheros date back to kind of the David Lean 65mm films. Um, so um, we were working with vintage, almost heirlooms. They're like Stratovarius instruments, really. Panavision have made them and kept them. And uh, uh, I really feel a certain amount of respect to the instrument um, when, I, you know, when we make a film with, these, uh, with this equipment. And so it brings out a kind of, uh, 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 I think, in us, um, a kind of veneration to the older generation and the way they worked and their precision and their uh, uh, kind of audacity back then to kind of break the norms. So I think that really inspired us for that opening sequence. Um, at the same time, I, I think we wanted to be timeless. Mm. Um, and... Um, uh, in what I guess, way? I guess, um, I, and again, I might again give a bit of respect to kind of uh, and kudos to French cinema in that um, uh, less is more often as well. Uh, things aren't overly, uh, uh, you know, there's not too, you know, just the right amount of lighting, just the right amount of dirt on the faces, just that restraint and that um, uh, love of realism um, and, and, and I think the trick there and the thing we try to balance out is uh, what is the balance between kind of realism and that magic, magic kind of, uh, hyper reality, uh, that those two things can coexist and that's when great things happen. It's interesting. You mentioned hyper reality. I Talk to me a little bit more about the way that you incorporated hyperreality into that intro scene, because it is something that I'm sort of picking up on your work in both Death on the Nile and Belfast is this kind of interesting framing that almost makes you look at a scene in a different way. You, you can kind of experience dialogue in a different way when the framing is unique. And I, we're going to talk more about framing in a moment, but since you mentioned it, hyperreality, Talk to me about how you incorporated that into that opening sequence of Death on the Nile. Well, one thing is kind of the choice of instruments. So the choice of instruments here was one of high fidelity, where you notice every freckle, you notice every blemish. Uh, you, you know, uh, 65 mil is, is an incredibly uh, clear uh, medium. So you therefore have to be very, very, very careful with your makeup and your hair and your costume, it, the costumes must have texture because you see the thread, the, the, you see the freckles on the face. Uh, Wackner, our amazing kind of uh, hair and makeup uh, artist, you know, just added the right amount of dirt on the faces. Um, that is, there's nothing accidental there. And so um, you feel the amount of time they've spent. Um, you might feel also that 
despite all of that, they're clean shaven. So they've taken time in the trenches. Every single part of that tells a certain story. On the other, on the other side, I really like, and so does Ken, very, very direct eyelines. Um, our eyelines are usually an actor right by the camera so that the, 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 the actor that someone is talking to. So uh, our actors always had their, their uh, um, counter actors quite close to the eyeline. So it's almost into camera, not, not, not into camera, but very close. So the audience feels it, um, I think, quite intensely. Um, we also, uh, we started on Death on the Nile and, and have continued into Belfast in a more extreme way of not repeating our shots. And therefore, it doesn't feel like your standard coverage. So every, every shot is earned and gained and um, does not feel like there's a film crew here. It feels like every angle is a particular point of view. Um, and um, we also chose very rarely to be on the eye line. So we may have been, in terms of height, so we may have been there laterally, i.e. it's quite uh, close, but we were often either a little higher or a little lower. And all those things were points of view. It wasn't just about is the other character standing or sitting and therefore the angle is that way. It might be because there's a piece of information, for example, the birds flying or the clouds in the sky or a dead tree that's just been blown to smithereens and is still standing just faintly. All those things give us depth of action. So depth of field is one thing, but it's pointless unless you have depth of action, unless you have multi-layers of things to kind of uh, see within a single frame. So within one frame, um, we are often with Ken trying to design a shot that gives you more than just one piece of information. Yeah, and when you pile each of those things up, it does create kind of a unique experience for the viewer that you really can't kind of put your finger on. Like Just listening to you explain the layers of you know, uh, the decision-making for each frame and kind of the layers of decisions on top of um, one another. You're right. It it does kind of create this hyper-realistic feel. But I think that you avoided, in both Belfast and Death in the Nile, you avoided um, creating something that makes you feel distant from it. it you, yes. You're never pulled out of the film. Even with all of those things that are a little bit unconventional, you never are pulled out of the film. And I thought that was kind of that was kind of interesting because there are a lot of shots and a lot of techniques that are not typical, but you're still, you still feel like you're in it. You still feel like you're seeing something familiar in a way. I think when we make decisions with Ken, we never do it because of another film or another, or because we've seen something. Everything comes from the heart and it comes from the script and it comes from what we see. So for example, one of the first things you see of Paro is you see these boots um, come into frame. They are clean boots in the mud. They tell a story. So we didn't just want to show boots. We just wanted, we wanted to show a character that is meticulous, even in the middle of a battlefield, even in the mud. He's tried his best. Now, the audience may not immediately um, uh, uh, see that, but it's, it's a clue. It's an insight. And, uh, and as you progress throughout the film, you, you, you gain a deeper uh, experience. Um, and, and that's what we were looking at. Everything has to be experiential. 
um, in, in the decision making. It's interesting to hear you talk about details in the wardrobe and, uh, and, um, you know, it, it, you're bringing up things that don't usually get discussed by directors of photography and cinematographers. Um, you know, elements that are really supporting the storylines. It's kind of interesting to hear you talk about those things because usually people come on this show, they talk about camera and lenses, obviously, like we did, lighting, stuff like that. It's very rare that we talk about those little small details and props and wardrobe that help support the story. So it's making me feel like your relationship with Ken is maybe different than, you know, other DP director relationships. It seems like you're almost more involved in a variety of departments, not just the camera. Um, I work only in my capacity as a director of photography. With Ken, he's such a collaborative person and such a, a, a confident uh, director that um, he asks you to be your best. Um, and really, the cinematography part for me is kind of just... I mean... I, it's like knowing how to write. You, 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 then you have to find the words to say that just because you could use a typewriter, you can't write a novel. Mm -hmm. um, the real, for me, essence of, of cinematography is to guide the audience to all these details we're talking about, to the story. And um, I think you have to be so... You have to be well-versed in the actual technical side so that it disappears. Otherwise, I don't think you can photograph a film properly. I think that makes sense. Now, the film begins in black and white, but then you very quickly now turn into color. And a lot of it. I mean, talk about beautiful vistas. The sets are gorgeous. I mean, opulence everywhere. It's just beyond. And, um, you know, especially juxtaposed with being in the trenches, it, it's, mm. it's just a totally different world. And it gives you a little bit of insight into our main characters. Um, I want to discuss the scenes on the boat, of which there are many. And uh, talk to me about that. Like, is this, obviously it's a set, but um, talk to me about the boat itself, kind of the makeup of it, how you filmed it, and what the scale of it, all that kind of stuff. Just what, describe a little bit, if you can, this boat set. It, it is certainly not your typical boat set. And again, we started out with Ken and he first off said, we are building a boat, full size, inside and out. If we wanted wow. to, we could have put it on a barge and floated it down a river. And we, we almost did that, but we didn't. Um, so we wanted to shoot without having to go, usually on a film set, you go from one room to the other, you have to move to another stage. You may have an exit and an entrance and maybe a facade, but you intercut kind of between different sound stages. In this case, we didn't. So what we did is we, Jim Clay, master, master production designer, built this glorious boat with every detail. Every doorknob worked and walked into another room. Everything wow. was double clad. Um, I mean, everything, everything, everything. Then we worked together and designed uh, kind of practical lighting within the boat, as we did on the train on Orient Express, and as we did in the house of, of Artemis Fowl, which was also a composite inside-out house built on a back lot. Um, all the lights went back to, were DMXable and LED RGBW, and I could control them on an iPad through my dimmer up. Um, I mean, every detail there was to make it work as functionally 
as a film set rather than a real uh, boat. And then we we couldn't really put it in a soundstage because it was too big. So we had worked with a company called Serious Stages, which built custom um, temporary sound stages, and they built it around the boat. And then again, I used a technique I'd used on Mamma Mia many years ago, where I instead of doing traditional film lighting with space lights, etc., for such a big ambience, to create the kind of ambient lighting that you would get outdoors uh we surrounded the boat which was about uh a hundred meters by kind of well the screens were about 500 meters in total diameter and 15 meters high in a back projection um uh uh screen so hold on Uh, i want to make sure i'm understanding it so what (laughs) i I know you have to see it to understand it's hard actually do you have any pictures of it that you can share it would be great i mean not at this moment but if you can share with them with us we'll put them on the website um that would be great just to have a visual and we might even incorporate it in the video if we can if we have time um so, you, so, so you're out. Screens. So you're out. Are you outside with this boat? No. So I'll get to that okay, in a minute. So we actually. You had mentioned that there was a company that creates sound stages, temporary sound stages around mm-hmm. you know objects like this particular stage of yours. This boat. What are they? What is the creation of the sound stage? Is it just like green walls or? No, what, no, no. It's a, it's it? a great big marquee, and they're used for exhibition spaces and for concerts, and they go all over the world. And we asked them to design and build something using their existing equipment that worked for us as a sound stage. So it's a structure like a big tent, but it has truss and it has rigging, and it is load bearing. So you can um, basically have a, a reds and a grid that work like a soundstage. And so we could put our lighting on there and we calculated the heights and the distances we needed. We calculated the lighting. I designed my lighting with my gaffer Dan Lowe on a, in a program called WYSIWYG where it's all in CAD. So I draw out and sketch things out and they all go into CAD and that's how we figure out our schemes. So um, it's very architectural in that respect, that you can manipulate it and change it and and, and work like a drawing. Um, But the biggest thing here was kind of some, uh, I have never liked green screen or blue screen. So it's something I took on early on, on Mamma Mia, which is to create backlit uh, uh, projection screens. Like um, it's, the material is almost like a shower curtain. It's like a back that Roscoe makes. So it's made by a film company, Roscoe. Um, and there were four walls, 200 meter by 15 meter walls and two 40 meter by 15 meter walls. And behind them, we found a formula of spreading, um, a certain type of light made by Ari called a sky panel that has RGBW LED mixing. And, uh, we, we, we found the magic distances that's, that, basically make a chromatic back projected color. And that color infuses the set with light as if it is outdoors because traditional film lighting space lights all come from above and in out in the desert, that would never happen. That would be the sun bouncing off the water, bouncing off the sand, um, uh, lighting up particles of dust in the air. And that's really hard to recreate in um, a soundstage. And it didn't seem right to 
to go those traditional ways. And since I'd already done it on Mamma Mia to create kind of hot grease, it seemed to be an appropriate thing to do uh, here. The technology and lighting has moved up. We didn't have sky panels back in 2008. We do now, and it's a wonderful tool. Um, so those created an ambience, but they were, they were also good because they turn into a blue screen automatically. You just change the color. They turn into a blue sky if you just wanted to do skies um, uh, like that or in the programming. I know, so Ben, it's hard to so, explain in no, words. No, no, it, but- it, it's starting, it's, it's making a lot more sense to me now. I had it wrong in my mind at first because I hear projection screens and I think you're projecting like background plates onto it. But no, this is just almost like a silk, a big giant silk that you project just a light source onto for more accurate, more realistic lighting. That's, um, that's half a kilometer long in in. Uh, and 15 meters wide, wrapped around. It's amazing. How many lights did you have? 960 sky panels. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, that if, is wild. If we, if we had to silk this, the top of the boat and, um, and light the blue screens and do it that way, we would have had to use somewhere in the region of 700 sky panels for a set this big. So the diff, and most of those sky panels would have been facing the blue screens, i.e. away from the boat and away yeah. from the actors. Um, yeah. I felt that that would be a waste of my resources. Every single lamp I used faced our set and our cast. So it's also interesting to me that you can immediately switch those screens to blue screens when you need it. So I'm thinking like, I'm gonna make a guess here. What When we have scenes where we are like looking over, you know, the, the, the balcony of the ship or whatever mm-hmm. it is, and we see, you know, the beautiful vistas of, of wherever we are, Egypt, um, are we looking at a green screen? Are, are we looking, or are we looking at just projected light that's then like, what, how, what, what are we looking at for real when we, when we see one of those What scenes? you would see is the, uh, the, the screens um, lit up at the color of the sky at the time of day we were using. That was keyable, first of all, which, okay. is, which was great. And then whatever you don't see was in was tungsten 3,200 Kelvin. So I only put the color in in what was seen. Everything else became uh, 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 a white fill that was from the right kind of level and direction that um, uh, you would if you were outdoors. Now, Ben, the other thing we did is we recycled the um, uh, railway lines that we used on Orient Express and we built a door to this soundstage. And when we had sunny days, and we wanted to do uh, 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 kind of the boats arriving. We built a tank outside and we would wheel our boat outside. Um, we oriented the soundstage according to the sun um, the way we wanted to um, uh, in the beginning in con- at the conception of all of this. And we'd wheel our 100 meter boat out and do, our, uh, and do some scenes outside in the sunshine, when we got sunshine in England, and when we had to do things like the uh, little motorboat arriving. So all the motorboat arriving onto a dock was a tank that was on the side of the Karnak um, with a real boat, 
um, and out in the sunshine. And then that was intercut, though, with many close-ups and mid-shots that we had done um, indoors. So we managed to match everything seamlessly. Oh, you absolutely did. So there was some tank work in this. That's what I was curious yes. about. Did did your main boat, did that ever end up in the water? Or was that always? No, we didn't take it. We, we thought of taking it to a river in Morocco, shipping the entire thing and putting it on a barge. Um, but uh, the logistics didn't work uh, for that. And, and our, the effect we got with what we had was so real um, we didn't feel we, we needed to. That's wild. So you're, you're, you're blasting a colored, you know, a realistic colored light towards people and that is all keyable. So that's I, never in a million years what I would have thought that I would have thought that it was just a green environment and everything was replaced. But that actually, when you think about it, it does make so much more sense. It's kind of the same premise as this kind of LED wall technology that we're seeing now more and more. It allows you to have realistic light sources instead of just bounced green or blue on people. So that's what we did. I think we were quite pioneering in that on Orient Express. I think we had created the largest LED uh, uh, surround on, we were the, the first large one on Orient Express. So Orient Express, the entire journey of the train, anything on the train, was uh, done in-camera LED. Mm. Um, however, our boat was too big to do that. So that was not something we could, uh, and that's, what, that's, what, that's also part of the impulse for this. So our boat was too big, so we, we had to go to this, this version. And, and what it does is, um, because you're not using blue or green really, only when you really have to, but pretty much 95% of it was the color of the sky we wanted. It reflects in the glossy paint, in the, in the windows, in the costumes, um, in the skin. Um, and you're getting something that, that's just in, inbuilt that you just couldn't any other way. You know, half the time with blue screen, you know, VFX spent like countless days and days just getting rid of blue spill and things that they don't want and trying to put in reflections and um, uh, hues that are in the ambience, uh, which we didn't have to do. I'd love to hear from you what was the most challenging scene in Death on the Nile. Um, and kind of explain to us what the challenges were and how you overcame them. I think the most challenging scenes for us on Nile were really the very long steady cam shots. So there are a couple. One was the nightclub and the and the dance. Mm. So both dances we did do three and a half minute kind of the entire song as a single take. I mean that takes a lot of choreography to work well. Um you know the lighting has to all work for the entire thing. Um and um also they weigh these cameras are not normal cameras. They weigh 51 kilos. So you have to be a beast of a Steadicam operator to do this. And we had Stamos Triandafilos, who is amazing. He's not only an artist, but um, he has the strength, the stamina, and the uh, balance to kind of pull off shots like this. Mm -hmm. He also had to do a, although again, it's cut up, but the, the murder, you know, Simon Doyle kind of being shot, or we did as a single steady cam shot that went from that kind of 
uh, glass bar area all around the boat to every single door, then went all the way back and found him again. That was, I believe, a four and a half, five minute take. One of the things we've always tried to do with Ken um, with ensemble cast is to create shots where you see every single cast member in a single shot. Like if you've got, if you've got this kind of great pleasure of having all these amazing actors uh, uh, as a cast, we tried as, as hard as we could. Uh, and especially with the 65 mil of all of this, that, you know, that kind of detail and high fidelity that you can see them all in a shot and that that makes you feel like you are there and that it's real and that this really happened. And to a large extent, it would be seen as many of the characters on the boat saw it, i.e. that the uh, conceit and the crime was hidden. If it's hidden from the camera, it's hidden from the characters, and you as the audience will believe that that crime has been committed and you don't know why. You had mentioned the lenses and camera that you used on the at the beginning of the film, the black and white section. Did you continue with those same lenses and camera package for the remainder? Yeah. Oh, they're, they're complete. I mean, you know, my respect to Panavision for building, they're like the Stratovariuses of, um, of camera equipment. There, there, is only, there are only two sets of these lenses. They are handmade. Um, they are not for sale. They're only for rent through Panavision. And they, will, they cannot be replicated as, as the same for the cameras. So um, when you get this set and you, you use it for the duration of your film and, um, and you're very grateful for that. So you might as well, if you got them, you might as well use them. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so I was just watching the Lighting Night Interiors course on Filmmakers Academy, and it's got to be one of my favorites. Um, but I wanted to bring Shane on who teaches that course, Shane Hurlbut, because there's something in there that I think would be particularly interesting to you guys. It's called Cello Cucaloris. I think I'm saying that right. Shane, am I saying that right? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, a cucaloris is uh, something like a breakup. And there's a hard wood cucaloris and there's a cello cucaloris. The wood kook is basically a four by four piece of uh, quarter inch plywood. And they literally cut really unique shapes that kind of look like leaves or breakup. A well, cookie. The cello yeah, That's what it is. That's what it a is. A cookie. Yeah. So then with the cello, it's like a double uh, scrim from a light. But what they do is they take a blowtorch and they actually heat the, the screen and it burns the plastic off of it, which makes it more translucent. And then it creates these very subtle patterns. So instead of the big, hard kook, you get this beautiful breakup that's very subtle and beautiful for that fragility for moonlight. And that's what you want when you're doing night interiors. So that that is a really interesting tip. And there's so much more in the entire course. So lighting night interiors is certainly one of my favorites, and I know it will be yours. So check it out in its entirety at filmmakersacademy.com. When I watch your films and I see shots that are traditionally oneers, you know, that you just kind of, it, it's a single shot, no cuts. 
oftentimes you can kind of tell when you're watching a oneer that it was done to almost like move scripts along. You see that in TV sometimes where it's like, let's just get through a few pages in this one shot. Or you see something that's almost so blocked that it's almost stiff. I feel like your one-er shots that I saw in both Death in the Nile and then also um, uh, Belfast, you seem to have a, a different approach to one-er shots where you almost are viewing the scenes as if you were the person in the scene. Like, I, I don't know if I'm describing it well, but it's almost like if a if a real person was to walk into this room, that is how you would would experience the room. There's almost there's a really organic way of viewing throughout this one or shot. So I guess my question here is, what is your general philosophy on these kind of steady cam one or shots that I'm seeing in your work? First of all, that philosophy is not just mine; it's shared with Ken. So we we uh, devise these shots completely and utterly together. And um, I don't think I could make shots like this if if Ken wasn't such a master director. And I'll give you an example. So I, I had uh, the idea of a circular track in Belfast for uh, Jude uh, when the uh, you know going three times on a perfect circular track until the explosion goes off. It's such an awesome shot. Yeah, it, the shot though, Ben is only good because Ken managed to put five minutes of brilliant directing in a single shot. You see everything for the right amount of time, at the right time, at the right place, with the right intensity, and every detail is seen because he's blocked it perfectly for that. Now, I know how he works, so when I make a suggestion like that, and I know what a virtuoso he is, so um, I look for things to suggest that will bring out the way he directs. So I would say that there's a real collaboration there where I would also say that he knows how I light and what I like to, how I like to frame. And, and, and it's very similar to the way he likes to frame and how he, so he, he, he will help me by blocking a scene that way because that's his taste too. So that is the art of collaboration, in my opinion. And that is the art of basically listening. Um, I, I, I listen to my director and I listen to the actors and look at them and observe. Um, I mean, I would say the way to find the essence of a scene and to get the best shot you can is you have to do three things. First, you have to observe really carefully. Then you have to contemplate your observations and what you've seen and think about them and think about them carefully. And then you have to act upon it and place the camera at the right place based on these observations and, um, you know, uh, these, this thought process. The wrong way to do it is to jump in there and say, it would look really great from here and expect everything to work because you think that's a cool shot. Um, that's what ruins a, 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 a shot for me or, or a scene. And I immediately, if I watch a film that's like that, I just switch off. So I just don't want the audience to switch off, really. That's my, uh, I want them to just dive in 
It's just so tempting though. Like as a cinematographer, you must be tempted, even though this is kind of your root philosophy and it's it's what you believe in and it's what makes your film so great. There still has to be this moments where you're like, oh, it just, I that shot could look so cool. <laughs> even if it doesn't make sense in the story, I just know it would be cool. Like, how do you balance that? How do you show that sort of restraint? At a certain time. So um, again, you have to earn a kinetic shot the same way you have to earn a quiet shot. And uh, I just wait for the right time. And I think Ken does the same thing too. So often we will walk around the set and our locations and just talk and think. And we don't write things down a lot. We just talk um, and think about things and, and look at things and say, yes, that this, this has a place, you know. Um, uh, I'm not sure when, and as we progress, and we talk about it, do you think that that scene would work well from there? Should we look at it from there? Is there something there? So Ken has a philosophy as well that comes from, again, all of this really is when you combine theater directing and uh, motion picture directing together, you, you get very interesting things happening because they're two different skill sets and they are very complementary and they help each other out. So. For example, uh, one of Ken's philosophies often is that if there's something important to be said, um, he always places an actor somewhere where they have never stood before mm. because it gives, it gives the audience a fresh look at a, uh, a particular uh, place. So if we found an angle that we haven't used, a location we haven't used, we'll think, well, what significance could it have in our story? Um, and, and we'll save it. So I think the answer is, is be patient and, and keep a mental note of things. And, and, and it will, you know, the reason to use that shot it will reveal itself at the right time for the right reason. I think perfect example of one of these really unique oneers. And I, I hate even calling it a oneer because it really isn't, but it is because there's no cuts. But in Death on the Nile, there's a moment where um, for those that have seen it, there's a moment where they kind of find the necklace after it was missing for a while. They found, it. and you're shooting this dialogue scene from outside the windows of the bedroom. And rather than kind of do the typical, you know, establishing shot and then cross cuts of each person talking, you go from window to window for each person that's speaking. So you kind of look through one window and then you come across to the next one and you go back and forth and back and forth. That's the whole scene. And that's what I mean. It's like, you're almost watching it as if, I mean, clearly you're not, the perspective isn't from inside the room, but you totally understand what's going on. You're following it. You're almost a voyeur in this moment. And it's a perspective that you just wouldn't, that you would never expect. And those are the types of moments that I think really make that film shine. Thank you for saying that. And thank you for noticing it. it, it, it and we only did it once. And, and that's, I think, the thing about earning these shots. Um, and, and that's the problem with, say, having the shot in mind and trying to force it into a scene. You will know when, when a, a scene like that can earn uh, 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 that approach. I, feel, I think that's an instinctual thing. I don't think that's... You can't learn that, in, in my opinion. I didn't learn it anywhere. Um, but I've certainly failed many times and learned uh, uh, where, where, where doing something like that might not work. I would say that's the only way I've learned how to do these things. Well, um, I, I think like, okay, so just taking that scene, for example, right? 
you, you mentioned this idea of earning the shot. And, and I like that. I like that idea just as a concept. But in that moment, did that opportunity really only present itself because of the set? Like, it, what? I guess what was? How did how did we earn that shot in your in your vision? Like, why did the decision? Why was the decision made to use that moment to have such a unique way of filming that dialogue? Some of it came from the fact that uh, we had been from a very cutty scene and we're going to a very cutty scene, um, and. Uh, so that was one part of it. So the, 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 you, you could do this. Um, and by doing it that way, you actually added a pace to a rather static scene. I mean, that's, the, that's one of the kind of challenges of a film like Death on the Null is, you, you, you know, in between the murders, which are very kinetic, and in between all that action is a long time of kind of, you know, uh, uh, talking and, and standing and, 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 and reasoning. And, and so you have to uh, uh, give all those scenes a certain flow. And in this case, that seemed to work. Otherwise, we would have been into kind of, you know, the POV onto Annette, or back onto Ken, and then onto Tom, and then to the necklace. And we would have had probably a scene that was made up of, say, seven or eight shots, including a close-up, and, and that would have been conventional. And I don't think we would have learned something. I mean, one of the things about that scene is that that is an unconventional mother-son relationship, um, that, that uh, he was doing... He was spying on his friend for... On you know, at the request of his mother, so there was something unusual in this, which led us, gave us the kind of idea. Now, on a practical level, it is exactly the same room redressed as Salome uh, uh, Otterborn's uh, uh, room. So we we knew we were going to shoot that room redressed um, uh, for that interview, and like most. And the reason we did it this way is that if you went in, if you go into any hotel or any boat, most of the rooms or cabins are all the same. There is a difference in in in, in dressing. So no matter what we des want, no matter what Jim designed, it would have been something similar. And we'd done a cabin room, so um, we needed to shoot it a different way. There was a practicality here, but that practicality would have probably been the same, uh, no matter what room we chose. Um, uh, on the boat. Yeah, and, and, you know, hearing you talk, I almost want to see the film again now because hearing you talk about the way that you came to these decisions is so interesting. Like, there's a moment where, um, I, I can't remember the character that was speaking, but it was another one of these interrogation moments, I believe, where inside the glassed-in bar and we get a ceiling shot. Like, we we look up and we see the ceiling um it kind of comes almost out of nowhere uh, because you haven't seen it before and you don't see it again, but it's just this really unique shot of shooting up at the character. You see the ceiling behind them. And mm -hmm. I think it, it, it comes at an interesting time in the film because we've seen by this point almost every angle you think you can see of this boat. And then you drop something like that on us. And, and I think it just, there's no real question there. It just is kind of an observation mm -hmm. as I'm listening to you talk about how you come to these decisions. So, it, there, there were a lot of moments like that in the film, um, and I just think I think you really did that that cast justice, and you really did that set justice by um, shooting it in so many different ways. And 
really appreciating the production design. I think because of our relationship with Jim, we can do that. And the way that he builds and he makes maquettes, he draws it out. We talk about things. He, he'll he tape it out, the entire set, so that we can walk through before he, he starts building it. And we have such a great relationship um, that... And also, you know, the process of building a set like that is quite lengthy. So, you know, you can walk in when it's a skeleton and just a floor and uh, suddenly the windows go up. It, it, it Like you... And, you know, you do these daily set visits as it, as construction is happening and you make little adjustments because it's all great on paper, but uh, we all know that it's, it's different seeing it come up, you know, uh, piece by piece. And, of course, that's the great thing about doing it this way rather than just taking a boat and using an existing boat. You can really kind of... Uh, finesse all of this and, and, and figure out, well, I'd like to shoot it this way. So if, if there was any, there are, I mean, there are countless kind of things I could say about, you know, the way Jim did it so that we could shoot this way. The stairs all lined up so that you could do continuous steady cam shots and go from one level to another level. Um, he'd make passageways so that you could get mid-boat um, from the port side to the starboard side. You wouldn't have to go all the way. All those things were there so that we could shoot it in an, a, a kind of interesting way. I want to talk about framing. Um, we had mentioned earlier in the show that you like a lot of negative space, which is part of kind of your tastes um, and Ken's taste as well, and my taste as well. So, you know, this film really resonated with me. But I want to talk about framing specifically in um, Belfast. Because what I'm seeing when I watch the film is that a real there's there's a real appreciation and respect almost for wide angles in Belfast. You use them a lot, and they always always are purposeful. And I think that's it's just such a great. It isn't just done to to look great. It isn't just done to create symmetry in a way. It's done every every inch of that frame is being used for storytelling. And I found that really interesting. So I just, I want to just kind of talk to you about your framing choices in Belfast, what it meant to the story and, and how you achieved that. Tit with Ken and, and we, on a studio film, we feel a certain responsibility to have a bit more coverage, even though we might have a very clear concept of what we'd like to do. There's a certain kind of responsibility that there might be some editing involved in, in the story and the pace, etc. With Belfast, we felt that we didn't really need to kind of have this, that we could create a, a story exactly the way we wanted to tell it. So we had many, many, many COVID restrictions as well. We shot for five weeks. Um, I usually have two two cameras and uh, two operators so that I'm just managing, um, you know, I'll go set up a shot, but I'll let someone else operate. You know, I had to operate myself on Belfast. Mm. Um, so, Did you enjoy that? Uh, Do you like operating? I, I love operating it. Uh, you know, you almost, as a cinematographer, you have to give up the thing you love the most, which is operating, um, so that you can actually do your job properly and, 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 and manage more than one camera. If it is one camera, I think it is, it is generally easier to be the cinematographer and the operator. But I find that uh, I cannot keep my eye on everything if there's more than one camera and I'm operating one. So that decision is made by myself uh, automatically. 
Um, but it came, it came from a place where we didn't want to also uh, pan or tilt. So if you've got to set up a scene that works for an entire sequence with all the actors moving back and forth, and you don't want to pan or tilt, then you have to leave enough negative space for all the action to happen. Uh, Why didn't you, you want to pan or tilt? What was the what was the reason for that? I wanted to concentrate on the performances. I didn't. I, I felt that that might uh, I'd be putting too much of myself into the uh, frame at that point. That the um, uh, at that point that that might be a distraction. I knew that the script was incredible. That every word meant something, that every emotion meant something. The rehearsals with these just the finest of fine actors was something really special. And I just, I felt like m my feeling when we rehearsed was I just want to sit and listen and, and look. And, and I felt that, that I had to find an angle that did the same thing. And so did Ken. Um, uh, but then again, I don't think you could sustain a whole film that way. There's a, you know, it gets really kinetic. You know, there's handheld, there's steady cam, there's circular tracks, there's, um, there's, people think it's a really still film, but it actually moves a lot. Um, it, it's just when it goes still, it really goes still. Um, I think and, and I, I think because of the movement is how is why people even think that it is a still film because you, you when you get those still shots it's really impactful. Ken was masterful. I mean, she just found the balance with Ken that was just so uh, uh, wonderful. Um, uh, every shot to shot kind of transition uh, is kind of informative emotionally. And I think that's, you know, it, everything is emotionally informative. It's not about, there's no exposition. Exposition is, it, it, it just takes you out the story. I think a lot of those wide shots we're talking about, um, at least the ones that I remember most clearly and that had an effect on me, was when you had three people in the frame. Uh, you had someone on the left, right in the center, and on the right, and you kind of, you always know where to look because the the acting just it's very clear who was supposed to be paying attention to. But I I liked the way that you kind of made these small homes and narrow narrow walkways and everything feel purposeful. Uh, every everybody felt like they knew where they were and they knew where they can be and they they had a comfort roaming around in their space. Um, and I where where the scenes were that didn't have three people, you had kind of a big swath of negative space, like two people sitting on a couch with absolutely nothing in the middle, for instance, or, you know, people, two people in different windows. Um, you always kind of want to look around the frame and find people. And I, I think that a lot of films that just rely on really shallow depth of field, and believe me, I do that all the time, um, especially if I'm in environments that don't look very well and I just need to blur out the background. Uh, a lot of what you see in Belfast is in focus, wide and it's almost like you can't hide like everything is there to be absorbed by the viewer i think that's just it's a really um i don't know it's kind of a bold choice it's almost a it's almost a little bit scary putting that much out there because the viewer can be distracted by anything but they they, they aren't and and that's how that's the way stills great 
the great magnum photographers all worked that way and um you know f particular for the time of belfast um uh you know philip griffith jones a great welsh uh magnum photographer and president of magnum for 10 years he took amazing stills of the time and what he did was he juxtaposed civilian life with military life just within one frame you saw more than one story going on at all time and so we really felt that it would be something like a a, a life magazine spread where you um you know it's it, the, the photos so so that's another thing i think that's interesting about the black and white choices there, there's many black and white movies out there you have to i don't think they're all the same because there are so many different types of black and white you have to choose the one that fits your yeah. story and um I, I i love kind of doing two things at the same time often or more than that within a frame so you could take naturalistic lighting we basically didn't use it was all natural light um, there were some practicals and there was some film lights on the, uh, in the bus and in the cinema and in the, uh, uh theater, but everything else was pretty much natural light and practical lighting, but we gave tone and contrast by the placement and also through the grade. So we went for a slightly more contrasty grade. Now, now that is something that, you know, I mean, I, I, I started in a dark room when I was about 11 and, and worked on my own prints uh, all through my teenage life. You know, you could add a kind of gloss and contrast to a, an image you took that was with available light and not film lit. And that that gives something that I find, you know, l going to a photo exhibition and seeing a great print, it's not the same thing as you know, you know, there are different types of book prints. There are different types of photo prints, the paper, the chemicals, everything. They make the experience different. And to me, the idea of taking something very natural and, and then being very meticulous again about where the blackest black is, where the whitest white is, where the grays are in between and all the nuances of that makes something really feel kind of like it can be looked at for a long time and that you can get something uh, by slowly roaming. I also think the idea of negative space is that the human eye never sees something like a close-up or a zoom in. There's all this peripheral stuff that happens. It's just your mind that takes you where you want to go. So uh, I think by framing this way, we, we let the audience's kind of own imagination and mind take them where they wanted to go. What did you film Belfast on? Uh, an Alexa Mini LF with my um, beloved uh, 65mm lenses. Uh, uh, the Alexa Mini LF is kind of a medium format digital camera. And that's, I haven't shot a lot of digital films. Uh, I think I've only shot four. So uh, I still shoot analog film. It's, I'm lucky enough to, I enjoy the process. Um, but uh, this seemed to be, better suited to uh, the LF for many reasons. But there was something about those lenses that uh, would allow me to be kind of 185. Again, something, I don't think I've shot 185 since 2001. Um, so that was interesting to just give that space. And um, 
And, and, and one of the reasons was I just, you know, if that's the size of the sensor, it's, it's a bit more squarish than 185. But I just wanted to use the whole set. Why would you, you know, when I, when I frame up on a stills camera, I don't kind of crop it. When I use anamorphic lenses, I don't crop the frame. When I use um, uh, 65mm, I don't crop the frame. So I felt I had to be true to the camera and the sensor I was using. Well, we could do an entire episode just on Belfast, but we just don't have the time. I've, I've already run over with <laughs> you, and I really appreciate the extra time that you gave us. Um, I mean, both films are great. Your entire catalog is great. I mean, you, everybody just, I'll put a link to Harris's IMDb. Most of the films I'm sure you've already seen. There's just so much great stuff on there, and I really do appreciate you coming on to talk to us. Of course, Belfast is out now, as well as Death on the Nile. Um, Death on the Nile is in theaters, at least as of this moment, but I'm sure it's going to be on streaming soon. And of course, Belfast is out for uh, purchase and rent right now. Just it, it, both films, excellent. And uh, it's it's interesting to see the similarities in both of them, even though they're very, very different films. But, um, you know, same director, same cinematographer. So of course there's going to be some similarities, but it, it is interesting to see the way that the way that you work and how you approach these scenes. Um, and I really, you know, appreciate you giving your insight to us. Thank you, Ben. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for, for taking the time to talk to me and about our film. I hope everyone sees it. And I hope actually for Death of the Nile, if you get the chance, we have made quite a few 70 mil prints. So, um, oh. uh, Please, uh, Dolby Vision or, or, or 70 mil and real 70 mil, um, it's quite an experience. I don't have a 70 mil theater near me, which is <laughs> killing me because, you know, when films come out like that, I'm like, ah, oh, that, that's the way I want to see it. So I might just have to take the trek down to, I think New York <laughs> might be my closest one, maybe something in Rhode Island. I don't remember, but it's, it's not close to me, unfortunately, but, um, but hopefully one day soon. Now that people are going back to the theaters, there's a yeah. demand. All right, a huge thank you to Harris Zambar Lucas for coming on and talking to us all about Death on the Nile and Belfast. See both films. You guys will certainly not be let down, of course. All of his other work, we'll put a link to his IMDb on gocreativeshow.com so you guys can check that out as well. I want to thank our sponsor today, Filmmakers Academy. Master your craft at Filmmakers Academy. Head over to gocreativeshow.com forward slash filmmakersacademy. And don't forget to get 10% off using the promo code GOCREATIVE10. GOCREATIVE10. I want to thank Connor Crosby from Ignition Visuals for producing this show, as well as Dave Siegel from SiegelSound.com for mixing, mastering, and making it sound so good. Follow us on your favorite podcast app, as well as Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Uh, subscribe to us there as well so you never miss an episode. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. And if you want to know what's going on with me, you can find me on Instagram at Ben Consoli. I post a ton of behind the scenes uh, clips from movies that we're featuring on this show, as well as stuff that I'm doing on my own uh, with BC Media Productions. So lots of behind the scenes, uh, lots of gear on my Instagram. Thank you for joining us today, and we will see you next week on another episode of the Go Creative Show podcast for filmmakers. Filmmakers.